Welcome to the ABA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Judge Herbert Dixon had already been eligible to retire for six years before he finally did it in 2015, after spending 30 years on the bench in Washington, D.C. Superior Court. That's the district's version of a state trial court. He stayed on longer because he was having too much fun changing the way cases are tried, bringing high tech into the courtroom. He likes showing young pups and others better ways to practice law. At age 69, Judge Dixon doesn't fit that epigram about old dogs and new tricks. He's still proselytizing about high tech in courthouses and courtrooms, and he predicts its future. Oh, and he's still trying some cases as a senior judge. For 10 years, he's been writing a column on technology in the Judge's Journal. That's the quarterly publication of the ABA's Judicial Division. The headline for his most recent one shows his sometimes playful approach. He throws out a string of Twitter abbreviations, hashtag VR, hashtag AI, hashtag IOT, are coming to a courthouse near you. We'll get to the translation in a moment. Judge Dixon was the main mover some years ago in getting the D.C. court to use electronic filing, and then he pushed to bring in high-tech to the courtrooms. He told me that younger folks sometimes say they're astounded that a senior citizen is talking to them about technology. Let's hear a bit of it for ourselves. Welcome to the show, Judge Dixon. Terry, thank you very much for this opportunity. I also thank the ABA Journal. I have a wonderful memory from my time when I was on the Board of Editors with the uh, Journal, and so I'm looking forward to this conversation with you. All right, good. For starters, would you please explain the headline in Twitterese in your latest column on the Judges Journal? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you're, you're right. I was having a bit of fun. Whenever I write a technology column, my goal is to entice someone who is not necessarily interested in the topic of technology to see what it's about. So I look for interesting titles. I also look for opening sentences that are likely to grab attention, and I try to build upon that. In this case, hashtag AI, hashtag VR, and hashtag IoT are coming to a courthouse near you. The first sentence in the article reads, the title of this column got your attention, didn't it? And then I go on to explain that hashtag AI is the Twitter abbreviation for artificial intelligence, hashtag VR, is the abbreviation for virtual reality, and hashtag IOT is the abbreviation for Internet of Things. And in the article, I give some examples of the types of related matters that might show up in a courtroom. Could you give some examples, maybe, starting with virtual reality in a courtroom? Absolutely. The idea behind virtual reality and how it might show up in a courtroom is this. Imagine, if you will, a system for taking 3D photographs and panoramic photographs inspired by the Mars rover. Uh, that is a camera mounted on a device that moves around the scene and records the scene 3D and panoramically. If you add to that a feature such as Project Tango from Google, uh, whereby measurements are actually taken and recorded during this process, what you will have is a virtual reality showing of the scene as it existed when the investigators appeared at the location, be it a crime scene or an automobile accident or a construction event or anything of, of that nature. As a matter of fact, 
the virtual reality may be such a powerful tool that if investigators need to go back and look at the scene, they have this wonderful panoramic virtual reality recording of the scene with measurements as it existed at the time. They can use it for the investigative purposes. Needless to say, once you establish in a courtroom the authenticity and the accuracy of what is being displayed, you can provide a jury with the same view of the scene as it existed at the time that investigators arrived there. For instance, another type of example that I gave concerns the Internet of Things, hashtag IoT. Folks know about the Internet of Things in this way. Uh, They can lock their car uh, from some remote location. They can check the temperature of their house at a remote location. They can have an Internet of Things type of device that's in their refrigerator that will directly order milk or eggs when uh, the supplies are running low. Well, IoT can be used this way as just one example. In a major metropolitan courthouse, attorneys quite often have multiple appearances on a day. And a judge can become very frustrated at trying to find the attorney. Think of a RFID, radio frequency identification chip, installed in an attorney's bar card, or perhaps an app on the telephone. As the attorney arrives at the courthouse and moves from one courtroom to another, a, a reader device at the various locations will record the entry and the exit of the attorney. And a judge looking for a particular attorney can consult what I call euphemistically the uh, attorney management information system to find out where an attorney is at a particular time. That works much better than the system we have now of the courtroom staff calling from one courtroom to another trying to locate an attorney. With respect to artificial intelligence, the quickest example I can give is think about where we are moving with autonomous cars. That is cars that will actually drive the route for you without any input by the driver other than indicating the destination. As we move towards that, we're going to have autonomous cars on the road with everyday vehicles that are being driven by drivers as they are now. Throw into the mix an autonomous intersection, that is smart traffic lights, a a type of device that will measure the flow of cars from each direction and instead of automatically waiting two or three minutes between light changes, when the device, that is the smart traffic light, detects that there is no traffic coming in one direction, it will signal the cars on the other street that the light is about to change and the cars will move through. The best example I can give of a potential lawsuit uh, is this. Uh, You have an autonomous car that approaches a smart intersection. Uh, The smart traffic signal does not note any other cars coming in the direction, in the other direction, Uh, gives a signal to the autonomous car to move through And then out of nowhere, a vehicle being driven by a regular driver comes through the other intersection about to cause an intersection collision. Well, the artificial intelligence in the autonomous car senses that potential collision and then moves immediately to avert the collision. The 
autonomous vehicle has a choice, plowing into a bus stop where many people are standing or plowing into a brick wall. Uh, in this case, the autonomous vehicle makes a decision to save more lives and plows into the brick wall, seriously injuring the passenger in the autonomous vehicle. Imagine that lawsuit. The passenger driver in the autonomous vehicle sues his vehicle's manufacturer, the software developer sues the software developer for the smart intersection, and of course sues the other driver who came through uh, the light. Imagine the discovery uh, that will have to take place, not only with respect to the data that has been retained by the autonomous vehicle and the smart traffic light system, uh, but also the vehicle that plowed through the red light being driven by a regular driver had a GPS unit that was sending information back to the cloud and the injured driver now asking for a discovery of that. That won't be your typical automobile accident type of trial in the future, and it can become very expensive. You know, I, I, those are just three quick examples of the artificial intelligence, the virtual reality, and the Internet of Things. And as you can see, it was an idea that I was having fun with. All right. You talk regularly to groups on the use of technology in the courtroom, and I think you have a particular interest in making the case for multimedia presentations. Can you tell us a bit about your own self-introduction at these talks? <laughs> I have developed uh, over time what I call as proof that a multimedia presentation to an audience can help them remember a tremendous number of facts over a long period of time. The concept goes back to Confucius, 500 BC. If I hear it, I don't remember it. If I see it, I begin to remember it. If I see it and hear it, you know, et cetera. In this instance, I present to individuals information about me, about my name, where I'm from, the high school that I went to, my job at the court, the presidents that appointed me, we are presidentially appointed, the second president that appointed me, just to give you an example. I went to Alfred Ely Beach High School in Savannah, Georgia, and I put up a picture of my high school, and I tell the folks about Alfred Ely Beach. Uh, all of a sudden, I point out to them, you're not going to remember Alfred Ely Beach, an inventor who, who created the first version of the New York subway. And then the next scene that shows up is an actual beach with the water flowing. I said, I went to Beach High School, and the audience gets a laugh out of it because uh, I tell them how, even though this is a memorable event, there are persons who will translate the details as they best remember. I tell them about meeting a person three weeks later uh, that tells me, I remember you, you're Judge Herbert B. Dixon Jr., you're from Savannah, Georgia, and you went to Ocean High School uh, because <laughs> he remembered the flowing uh, ocean. However, it works uh, because I have run into individuals six months, two years, four years later who've recited details to me about myself that they learned from that presentation. Uh, many have said it was an aha moment because they see how that multimedia type of presentation can assist people in remembering details they would not ordinarily remember. Do you tell them which two presidents appointed you? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, I tell them and I show a picture. Uh, the first president that appointed me is Ronald Reagan. And then I throw a picture of President Reagan on the scene. And then I tell them the second president that appointed me 15 years later was President William Clinton. And I throw a picture of him up on the scene. And then to make fun of it, to help them remember, uh, I said, look at that, a very popular Republican, a very popular Democrat. And I show a donkey and an elephant dancing. And I then show a picture of myself dancing. And, and then I explain uh, why they shouldn't use this type of presentation on a trial because the other side will accuse them of blowing smoke and, and not concentrating on the facts. But it helps folks to remember that I was appointed by a Republican and a Democrat, and it helps them to remember uh, who those individuals were. Very interesting. Another thing on your background, by the way, I don't know if it's in your self-introduction, but you have an engineering degree from Howard University and then a law degree from Georgetown. How did that come about, the change from engineering to law? In my senior year studying engineering, my plan at that time was to apply to graduate school to get a Master of Business Administration. Uh, I felt that I wanted to work uh, in corporate America as uh, an engineer. Uh, what I discovered as I was thinking about this is a lot of my classmates decided that they wanted to do the same thing. I felt that that was too many folks attempting to follow the same career path and abruptly, I decided to go to law school. As a matter of fact, I recall to this day walking into the auditorium to take the LSAT, uh, the Law School Aptitude Test, without having gone <laughs> through uh, any type of preparation course. Obviously, I passed because I was accepted to law school at Georgetown, which was the only school that I applied to, quite frankly. And I've been afraid to this day of going back to ask what was my test score, uh, because they might find out I didn't pass, and I'm not sure what type of repercussions that would cause. But it was a last minute decision uh, about which I have no regrets. That sort of explains how I became involved with technology. My first several years as a judge were you know, typical. However, with the introduction of electronic filing in the uh, late 1980s, that gave my judicial career a different type of spark. Well, tell me this, then that goes to the next thing I'd like to know. How did you get involved in the movement to bring high tech into the courthouses? <laughs> that, that's a story that I love to tell. In the Superior Court of the District of Columbia, we have over 60 full jurisdiction uh, judges uh, we have approximately 20 uh, magistrate judges. And unlike uh, states where the judges are all over the jurisdiction, uh, in the District of Columbia, uh, we're all concentrated in essentially two buildings. At one time, it was just one building, but now it's two. We feel very good about ourselves as a trial court. We have often called ourselves one of the finest trial courts in the country. During my process of trying cases, uh, attorneys quite often would show up with their own technology. Uh, they would bring in their projectors, they would bring in their uh, flat screen monitors, or 
they would make use of the drop-down projector screen that we had in every courtroom, but they had to bring all of the technology in order to make a presentation. I raised the issue with several chief judges without success. I tried to enlist the aid of some of my colleagues, and one colleague who will remain nameless as I was going about this process, I remember responded to me, who needs it? The chief judge who came to the court uh, approximately uh, eight years ago, sent out a notice to all judges uh, indicating that he was willing to meet with each of us for a six-minute appointment for the purpose of talking about our assignments. I was not particularly concerned about the assignment, but I saw this as another opportunity to approach the new chief judge uh, to make this pitch. And within my six-minute meeting that really did not go the full length of time when I finished, this chief judge said, I agree. We should do that. And once he commissioned it, all of a sudden, the budget opened up. I had the cooperation of the court administrators. Our clerk of the court at the time said that our chief judge gave me an unlimited budget, and I spent every cent of it. But we developed the courtroom. It was a hit. At that time, once I was using the courtroom, then attorneys were making requests of other judges. Can we use Judge Dixon's courtroom? And of course, Judge Dixon was using his own courtroom for his cases. So that was not something that occurred other than when I happened to be on vacation. Uh, that courtroom was such a success that we then built another high-tech courtroom, and we have now used those courtrooms as the template for all courtrooms that we have to renovate going forward because we have reached a point in the career of the building that we're in uh, that it's time for renovation and courtrooms are being refurbished. As they are being refurbished, they are being updated with a significant amount of the technology that we installed in those first two courtrooms. Uh, I had fun in, in those courtrooms. As a matter of fact, I was handling very complex civil and criminal cases, but when my calendar broke down, that is, I didn't have a trial and others needed some help, I would call for either a misdemeanor criminal case or a small claims type uh, civil case young attorneys would walk in, uh, they would look starry-eyed at the courtroom, and then my courtroom clerk would tell them, the judge requires you to use the equipment too. For a new attorney, this is a terrifying experience because they're really just beginning to learn how to ask questions during the course of a trial. And so I had the wonderful pleasure of being able to teach and encourage young lawyers uh, and also encourage uh, more senior lawyers to make use of the equipment that was available. It was a terrific hit. Well, to get it going, you needed to get buy-in from, and you mentioned it, other judges, I guess court clerks. You began with your chief. You had to work with an IT department. That was new. How did you, uh, there must have been resistance, and how did you deal with it? Actually, the resistance, Terry, came more with the electronic filing than with the high-tech courtroom. Mm. Uh, when we started the process of implementing electronic filing, there was a resistance from judges, a resistance from clerks, or a resistance from lawyers. It was something that, of course, that was new to them. 
and all sorts of questions would be raised about how do we know that what we submitted electronically is what you received? How do we know that someone's not going to hack into the system? All these are questions. Because the chief judge was behind the process and said, it's going to happen, everyone fell in line. As a matter of fact, we have come so far now with the electronic filing that no one wants to do without it. Uh, now that it's been introduced, now that it has been tried, now that it has been used, folks see it as a necessity. Uh, they file and access pleadings from their office, from their home, from some other remote location while they are away from the jurisdiction. Just so that I could say I did it, I filed orders when I was in California, uh, in the state of Mississippi, and one time I filed an order when I was in Tanzania on the continent of Africa, just so that I could say I did it. You know, it was only last year that the National Center for State Courts could say that all the states now have electric filing. At this point, any lag probably has to do with budget concerns and not fear of change. Does this surprise you? It does not surprise me that it's only recently that all states have now moved towards electronic filing. Uh, I was in Illinois earlier this year, and I learned that their Supreme Court had issued an order at the beginning of the year uh, mandating uh, electronic filing for the entire state because there were many jurisdictions within Illinois that had not implemented. There were some jurisdictions that had, but many, many jurisdictions that had not. At least that particular Supreme Court order was letting everyone know that electronic filing was going to occur. As I recall, and don't quote me on this, but as I recall, uh, all of the counties uh, were to have a system up and running, as I remember, by late 2017 or 2018. Where individuals have not been involved with electronic filing, there is that natural fear of change. There are some who will embrace change just for change's sake, but there are others who will fight it. And it does not surprise me that there are many jurisdictions that have reached the point where they have mandated electronic filing. It's still new to many jurisdictions. Uh, they are concerned about what it will bring. But the thing that I can tell them with confidence is once they've had a few months' experience with electronic filing, they will not want to go back to paper files. Another part of this is once something new is adopted, and I think particularly with the high tech in the courts, it starts moving faster. I saw a column you wrote in the Judge's Journal, I believe it was the Judge's Journal a while back, where you made some predictions for the future based on some of the technology. Could you tell us a bit about the future? That was another one of those instances, Terry, where I was allowing my imagination to, to just run wild in terms of the types of things that could occur. For instance, I indicated that increased video hearings will lead to the general acceptance of virtual hearings and trial. I was even predicting that when individuals go to a courthouse to look for the courtroom where a particular trial is occurring, They'll walk in and all they will see is a video screen or at least a series of video screens, uh, one showing the judge, the other showing 
the trial participants, and if you want to be really far-fetched about it, another video screen showing jurors who are reviewing the trial from remote locations themselves. Now, I'm not predicting that that's about to happen now, but I was allowing my mind to just expand in terms of the types of things that could happen. I also predicted that the discovery process will be consumed with requests for geolocation data. For instance, quite often the prosecution will seek information regarding a defendant's smartphone uh, in terms of the towers that it may have been pinging off of during a particular crime. What I'm also finding now is that defense attorneys are making similar requests with respect to prosecution witnesses to find out if they were in the place that they claimed to have been to see the things that they claimed that they saw. Uh, in addition, I saw this play out in a trial where there was no witness uh, to the homicide. All we had were the telephone pings between the cell tower and the smartphone uh, between the defendant's home and the location where the murder occurred. There was the defendant's fingerprint on a Fritos bag that happened to be in the vehicle. And of course, there were some statements that the defendant made to, to others that indicated that he was going to see somebody from the old neighborhood. But when you combine that, that is his statements, going to see somebody from the neighborhood with the telephone pings off the cell tower following a route from his home to the location where the homicide occurred, then to have the fingerprint on a Fritos bag that was found in the vehicle of the homicide victim uh, that type of geolocation data resulted in that case in a conviction. I think where attorneys will see a lot uh, will be with technology-assisted uh, discovery. For some reason, folks think that when there are millions of pages of data, that the golden rule or the approach that's the golden standard is a human taking a look at each page or at each document. There have been enough experiments and there have been a number of reviews of existing data sets that have proven that technology-assisted discovery moves much faster and is much more accurate than human eyes on. As a matter of fact, not to get political in terms of giving you some information, the recent FBI review of 650,000 emails was accomplished with technology, whereby they were able to weed out the emails that they did not want to review with the ones that were different. And you can do a tremendous amount of work in a very short period of time with technology-assisted discovery. One of the predictions that I also made was that e-filing will be the norm. And I think just based on our discussion a moment ago, about all jurisdictions now uh, moving towards universal electronic filing in their courthouses. I think that prediction has, has already come true. And lastly, Terry, allowing my mind to expand, I suggested to folks that parties will try to 
encourage judges to use technology-assisted deception detection. Now, I'm not talking about a lie detector. I'm talking about devices that will measure the body temperature, that will watch the eyes to see if the pupils dilate, to capture fidgeting, uh, a microphone, to collect data concerning uh, changes in the vocal pitch, uh, weight sensing, as I indicated, to see someone shifting in their seat. <laughs> and by the way, that was a tongue-in-cheek projection, uh, that is technology-assisted deception detection. But I have been involved in litigation for over 30 years as a judge and for any number of years before that as a lawyer. And the only thing uh, that I've learned is don't be surprised about something new because it will happen. So even if not in our lifetime, I suspect that lawyers will be promoting the use of technology to assist the judge to see who's not telling the truth. This has been fascinating, Judge. It's obvious your interest and passion in this come through clearly, and you're a force for change. Thanks. Terry, thank you very much. This has indeed been a pleasure. And if there is a future occasion where I can talk to your audience more in order to encourage them towards the use of technology, just call me and I'll be there. All right. I'd like to thank Judge Herbert Dixon for joining us and our listeners for tuning in. And please come back for another episode of the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels Trailblazers podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, Find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.